And I'm going to be reading uh, from verses 1 to 12, James 4, verses 1 to 12. It has the title, Submit Yourselves to God. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? I'm going to now ask Rich to come up uh, and uh, lead us on his thoughts on that passage. And I'll pray for Rich as he comes up. Father, we thank you for Rich and the message that you've placed on his heart as he comes to speak to us on your word. We pray that through him you will shine a light on our hearts with the pure light of divine knowledge so that our minds will be open to understand your gospel. So Lord, we pray that you'll implant in us the fear of your blessed commandments Trample down all our worldly desires so that we may live fully in the spirit, doing the things that only please you. For you, Lord, are the illumination of our life, and we give you all the glory, honour and praise. Amen. Thank you, Rich. Well, thank you for having me back. It's great to be here again. You know, uh, the Bible exists primarily not to teach us how to live, but to turn us to the Lord. So rather than a, a list of commands to follow, 
It is something that drives us to the Lord Jesus. And it's important to remember that, especially in the book of James, where it would be very easy, would it not, just to give a list of do's and don'ts that come out of this passage. If you're a Christian, you should do this, and you should not do this. If you lack wisdom, ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Look into God's law, not forgetting what you have learned, but doing it. Visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being spotted by the world. And that's just chapter one. Or from today's text, don't covet, or pray for God to provide, or don't be a friend of the world. Or verse 11, don't slander other Christians. But to do that, to treat God's word that way, is to miss the whole point of it. Because the purpose of James's letter, just like the purpose of all of Scripture, is not primarily to teach us how to live, but to turn us to our Lord. And so, as theologians often put it, good theology leads to doxology. In other words, if we're studying right, it will lead us to worship. So how does James chapter 4 drive us to Jesus? How, do, how does it grow our knowledge of God? How does it open our hearts more widely in our worship of him? Well, it seems to me the text is primarily about submission. And in the first half, James is talking about wrongful submission. Then he urges right submission. He gives a diagnosis and then he gives a remedy. And actually then he gives a warning at the end. So we'll look at it in those three sections, the first definitely being the longest, the diagnosis, and so important. You may have noticed as you read these first few verses of James chapter 4, that actually James is not saying, don't quarrel and fight among you. He's not saying, don't kill. He's not saying, don't covet. He's not saying don't ask with wrong motives. Rather, he's just highlighting how things are on the ground. Do you see that? His readers are quarrelling and fighting, and they're killing and they're coveting, and they have wrong motives all over the place. That's how it is. And he sums it up in one pithy and devastating statement in verse 4. Did you notice it? You adulterous nation. Adulterous. Why does James describe his readers? This is a church, right? Why does he describe them as adulterous? It will be fair to say, I think, that all through the Old Testament, idolatry and adultery are often in the same category. They're almost synonymous because faith, faithlessness to God, of course, that's idolatry but it's also adultery, because we're not faithful to him. Passion for the world instead of passion for God is both idolatry and adultery. And back in James chapter 4 here, he describes misplaced passions twice. You don't see it quite as much in the NIV, but it is there in the original. Verse 1, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from your desires, your passions, that battle within you, passion for the world. And then verse 3, you ask with wrong motives that you might spend what you get on your pleasures or your passions, wanting to satisfy worldly passions. 
So when James describes them as adulterous people, he doesn't mean they're having extramarital affairs. He means their passions are for the world rather than for God. They love the world when they should love the Lord Jesus Christ. They're adulterous. And so often, so are we. And then in verse 4, he drives us a bit deeper. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Anyone who chooses to become a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That's strong. Jesus said you can't love both God and money. Yes, either you'll love the one and, and hate the other or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. That's how Jesus put it. Either we love the world, we seek to get on in the world, we seek to expand our business or propagate our wealth or build our pension or grow our brand or whatever it might be. We want to be known and to matter in the eyes of the world or either we do all that stuff or we seek God. We seek to deepen our understanding of him, our love for him, to strengthen our grasp on the truth, to build his kingdom, to display his glory. And if we truly love God, then the world will hate us. That's how strongly the New Testament writers put it. To attempt to love God and to love the world is adultery. What a warning for those of us who are Christians and what a challenge for those of us who are not. If you are running after the world, you are an enemy of God. Do you want to be God's enemy? Do you want to be an enemy of the sovereign, almighty, omniscient, omnipotent, holy God who created you, who sustains you moment by moment and hour by hour despite your animosity? Surely not. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And if you are not a Christian, then you are an enemy of God, make no, uh, make, there's no two ways about it. And you will fall into his hands eventually, and you will face that punishment that he promises for his enemies. And if you're a Christian, then acting like an enemy is standing in opposition to the God who saved you. And it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is James's diagnosis, description of the problem. But before we get to the end of his diagnosis, and you need it open, we come to a bump in the road in verses 4 and 5. I don't know if you've seen that. Verse 5, do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us? God is jealous. What in the world does that mean? Jealousy for a human being is a bad thing, a sinful thing. Envy is one of the seven deadly sins, quote-unquote, right? So how can God be said to be jealous? He isn't sinful, quite the opposite. Now, you might think, well, perhaps another translation helps. So you might go to the ESV, my favourite, and it reads this way. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, quotes, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, unquote as if James is quoting scripture directly. The problem is that adds to our difficulties. Why does it do that? Because however hard you look, in all of the scripture everywhere, you will not find a scripture text that says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. So moving to a different version has made the problem harder rather than easier. What do we do with these kind of issues? Of course, if you're a liberal, who doesn't accept all of the Bible, or perhaps even any of the Bible, then it's not really a problem. 
You just say, Peter is both confusing, which is why we can't understand what he's saying, and confused, because he thought something was in Scripture and it actually isn't. That latter is a bit like people who think that God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible, when it isn't at all, not even vaguely. And in fact, of course, God helps those who are well aware they can't possibly help themselves. But anyway, if you accept the inerrancy of Scripture, like we do as Christians, then our starting point is... This is true, so how do I make sense of it? From the commentaries, there are a few ideas, but from where I sit, the one that makes the most sense comes by looking at something Paul writes back in Romans chapter 4. I would encourage you to turn there. So Romans chapter 4, I'm going to make you work a bit, um, for which I don't apologise, because we're in God's word, so working a bit is the best thing you will ever do, all day, all week, all year. So, Romans chapter 4, verse 6. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. The quote from Psalm 20, uh, 32 in verse 7 and 8 is preceded by Paul's introduction in verse 6, in which he mentions the blessing from the quote he's about to give. Did you see that in the text? So he gives us this kind of lengthy introduction, and then he gives us the quote. Why do I point you there? Well, if you turn back to James in chapter 5, if you turn back to James uh, chapter 4 sorry, and have a look at verse 5, do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? Therefore it says, and now he quotes from Proverbs 3.34. In other words, there is a quote from scripture here, but it's in verse 6, not in verse 5. The ESV is confused because it adds quotation marks, and of course there aren't any of those in the original. But James is not confused. He's quoting from Proverbs 3, and he knows that. So rather than saying there is a scripture, quote, for God jealously longing for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us, rather than that, he's providing us a lead-in to Proverbs chapter 3. That deals with the problem we get when we read the ESV. There aren't many problems we get when we read ESV, but that's one of them. But what are the first problems? What does he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us actually mean? I have to say, I think seeing verse 5 as an introduction to verse 6 helps us with that very problem. But just before we get there, let's deal with the word spirit that you see there in verse 5. He writes of the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. He's not referring to the Holy Spirit. That's why no translations put a capital S there for spirit. He's referring to our renewed spirit if we're Christians. I said I was going to make you work. If you pop back to Ezekiel, he'll be helpful on this front as well. So Ezekiel 36 is helpful here. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. Have a look at what he has to say here. This, of course, is about the new covenant under which we live. And he says this. I will give you a new heart... And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and uh, from from you, and give you a heart of flesh. That's verse 26. Verse 27. And I will put my spirit, capital S, within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to uh, follow my rules. So in verse 26, 
uh, in that chapter of Ezekiel. He speaks of the spirit that has been renewed because we are in Christ. And in verse 27, he talks of the Holy Spirit who is implanted because we are in Christ. Do you see the difference? So if we come back to James and chapter 4 again. I keep losing James. I don't know why. Uh, Hebrews James. There we go. Uh, If we come back to James and chapter 4, he jealously longs for the spirit he caused to dwell in us, refers to our renewed spirit, not to the Holy Spirit. And then we come to the problem of God being jealous. Now, of course, um, most of you will know you don't have to read the Bible for very long before you come across passages that describe God as jealous. You shall not bow down to an idol or serve it, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, Exodus 20. Or you shall, not worship, you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God, Exodus 34. The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God, Deuteronomy 4. The Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, Deuteronomy 6.15, and there are more and more and more. What does the jealousy of God mean? For us, jealousy is to want something for ourselves that somebody else has, that is not legitimately ours. Our jealousy reflects pride and arrogance. It's rooted in a belief that we deserve something that we don't have. But for God, of course, jealousy is an entirely different thing because he's the creator of all things. He's the master of all things. He's sovereign over all things. Everything in all of the universe owes its existence and its ongoing existence to God himself. Nothing would exist without him. None of us would exist without his ongoing sustaining of us. If God died today, everything would be gone. He upholds all things by the power of his word, we read. All things. That doesn't exclude anything. (laughs) He upholds all things by the power of his word. And as such, he deserves all the praise and all the honor and all the glory that there is. The best situation for our world, our universe, the best situation for us as human beings is if God is receiving all of the glory that there is. That is the best state of affairs for us. That is exactly how everything should be. When you read the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you read the very first, uh, very first question, what is the chief end of man? What are we here for? And it responds, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is our purpose. If you want to know what am I here for, the answer is to bring glory to God. That's why you're here. No other reason. It might be said the chief end of God is also to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's exactly how it should be because because he is master over all things. All glory and honor and majesty belong to him. And so if he does not receive all glory and honor and majesty, the right response to that is jealousy. The right response to that is, hang on, that does belong to me. And you're giving it to somebody else or something else. Rather like if a husband is unfaithful to his wife, his wife is jealous. And so she should be. It is a good response. Because all that he has should be given to her. And it has not been. So 
God receiving all the glory and all the honor and all the power is the greatest display of love there could ever be. We, his little bitty tiny creatures that walk around in this massive universe in which we live, in which he created, we get to share and glory in the love of God expressed to us in Christ who so stooped to rescue and so stooped to save that we might have life. We get to be enfolded in the infinite love of God himself. Nothing could be better than that. And anything which is not wholly concerned with the glory of God is something which disorders the universe, undermines the expression of his love, and that is an utterly monstrous thing. And God's holiness demands that he is jealous. Because he must uphold his own glory and his own honour. Anything else would be a travesty of truth. God's jealousy in the Bible, as far as I can see, is always connected with this idea of idolatry. People worshipping something other than God. So that makes sense of his jealousy. Because if we worship something other than God, we're doing precisely the wrong thing. We should be bringing our worship to God alone. And so God's holiness results in his burning Jealousy. Verse 5, he yearns jealously for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us because our new spirit should be solely dedicated to God himself. Hearts which crave for God's glory alone, anything else is idolatry and adultery. So when our spirits run after lower earthly things, the Lord is jealous. And what does he do? Verse 6, he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There's only one reason for not bowing to God in everything, and that's pride. We think we know better. We think something else will bring us lasting satisfaction rather than the Lord Jesus himself. And so God stands in opposition to that pride. That's James's diagnosis. You adulterous people. I wonder whether he'd say the same of you. I wonder whether he'd say the same of me. You commit adultery. That's James's devastating and deathly diagnosis. But he doesn't leave us there. He brings us to the cure, the remedy, the means by which we return to fidelity and faithfulness to the Lord himself. And that's verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. That's the remedy. It's kind of simple, really. You're not submitting to God. What's the remedy? Submit to God. It's kind of simple. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Come near to God, he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. How do I do that? Grieve, mourn, and wail. Turn your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. He's not saying, don't ever smile about anything. He's saying, recognize your sinfulness and come before God in repentance. That is your only hope. And this laughing about being embedded in the things of the world rather than the things of God, put it behind you and come in tears to the throne. Humble yourselves before the Lord, verse 10, and he will lift you up. So if you're a Christian who's fallen into enmity with God, showing passion for the world as well as for God, what can you do about it? How can you live better? Verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. 
Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. The back at verse 6 briefly. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And as soon as you humble yourselves, what does he do? He gives you grace. Yes? Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. He rescues, he forgives, he restores. That's the heart of James' message here in these 12 verses. Surrender all to Jesus. We're going to sing it at the end of the service today. Surrender all to him. And what happens? He gives us grace. He gives us grace. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So that's God's plea for us here this morning as well. Surrender to Jesus, submit yourself to him, and when you do, you receive grace. And it's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And there is nothing greater than that. And then James finishes with a little warning. I don't know if you noticed that in verse 11 and 12. Do you know, I recently heard a sermon on the book of Proverbs, looking particularly at laziness. And the sermon highlighted lots of different ways in which people can be lazy. And when you hear a message like that, what, what do we all do? We think, oh, I can think of somebody who really should have been here this morning. Somebody who really needed to hear this message, because I know that they do that, and they don't do that, and they do that, and they don't do that, and they needed to hear that they were wrong. Our sinful hearts refuse to allow, there may be a problem in us. There may be a problem in us. We see the speck in someone else's eye, but miss the plank in our own, as Jesus put it. And that's what James is warning us about in verse 11 and 12. Brothers and sisters, don't slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it. You're sitting in judgment on it. And there is only one lawgiver and judge, and that's God himself. And you're not him. God is the one who is judge, not you. So this text applies not to everybody else. Well, it does apply to everybody else, but it applies to you. That's the point he's making. Don't offload everything to somebody else. Think for yourself. Am I an adulterous person? An idolatrous person mixing worldly passions with love for God? And the answer often, sadly, is yes for us, isn't it? We're sinful people and we fail regularly. So what can we do? Submit yourselves then to God. And he will lift you up. All to Jesus I surrender. All to thee I freely give. I will ever love him and trust him. In his presence daily live. I surrender all. And if we do... So the God of love and mercy rises, raises our sights to his own glory, forgiving us through the death of the Lord Jesus, wiping the slate clean and bringing us to bow in wonder, in love and in praise. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we contemplate your immense holiness, it causes us to recognise our own fallenness, it causes us to bow and it causes us to turn from our sinful ways and to submit to you the author of all the father of glory and also the author of our salvation and we surrender to you 
once again. We submit to you, we repent, we trust, we depend on you alone. Knowing that that is the greatest thing for us. To bring you the glory. Amen.